So tonight, let's visit the contrarian of the wisdom literature and look at a book called Ecclesiastes. Now, as a book, Ecclesiastes is uh, fascinating. So with no setup and no context, Ecclesiastes, even with a little bit of setup and context, Ecclesiastes reads like the observations of this resolute nihilist. Our existence is without purpose or meaning. The universe is wildly chaotic and unjust. We're all en route to the abyss of non-existence. So, live well, eat, drink, and be merry. When your life concludes, nothing will be resolved and nothing matters. And, you know, it's like before there was Friedrich Nietzsche, there was Ecclesiastes. Before there was Fight Club or Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral, there was Ecclesiastes. And this makes for, you know, something of a conundrum when you consider the prevalent tendency displayed by many followers of Jesus to sort of fragment this library of writings that we call the scriptures only to distill their findings into a kind of formula. If you do these things rather than these things, you'll be blessed rather than cursed. If I behave this way rather than that way, I'll enjoy a happy life rather than a troubled one. If I say a certain special prayer rather than no special prayer at all, I'll get to go to heaven rather than hell. And there are moments in the scriptures where apart from the larger context of the Bible story, a formula seems to make a lot of sense. The basic emphasis of Proverbs is be honest, maintain a sort of upright integrity, fear Yahweh, seek wisdom, and life should work out accordingly. And Ecclesiastes seems to posit the counter-argument, not always. Uh, What about the noble sort of person that lives a life the author of Proverbs would award a standing ovation only to find suffering and sickness and persecution and death? What about the Proverbs-worthy individual who suffers because they live a life of upright integrity? The person that gets fired for their honesty or the person that gets arrested for pursuing the way of Jesus? We're simply those who pursue the teachings of Jesus with wild abandon and have yet known great tragedy and pain in their lives. Those of you who follow the way of Jesus and then sit waiting for the voice of God only to find an endless echoing silence. This is why Proverbs, read in isolation, seems to offer no shelf for the exception to the rule. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, has a great many shelves for it. And again, it doesn't imply a necessary contradiction to speak of, but rather this sort of significant reminder that these books are meant to be read in concert with one another. And if you remember last week, Gerald imagined the three books of the wisdom literature as uh, distinct personalities. So Proverbs is Lady Wisdom. She's this elegant woman of intelligence and discernment who's played by the rules, and she's one. Lady Wisdom attests to the validity of her methods with a life well lived. Look, I did all these things, and it worked out very well for me. Then you have Job. Job is a sort of hardened, stoic old man who's known suffering like none other. He's been shaped for the better because of it. And Job has seen wisdom succeed. He's seen wisdom fail on more than a, you know, just a theoretical level. And rather than being hardened by bitterness and cynicism, Job has become joyful and at peace, wise, but sort of quiet and on the sidelines. And this leaves Ecclesiastes who might be the kind of a middle-aged cynic who believes himself to be a man of impeccable taste. His list of accomplishments is staggering. His passport is populated by exotic stamps. His impressive home is filled with all manner of envy-inducing stuff. Uh, He's well-connected. He schmoozes with the elite. He walks the halls of the rich and powerful, and he's no longer impressed by any of it. In fact, he's drifted from interest to sympathy, and then from sympathy to empathy, and then to apathy, and his final stop is antipathy. With that in mind, let's go to the text. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 
the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, pause for a moment. The end. Um, just kidding. There, there are two personalities behind the book of Ecclesiastes. Someone called the teacher, which we just heard about, and then there's the author of the book. They're not one and the same. The author is compiling the thoughts of this character called the teacher. And this compilation of thoughts becomes the book we call Ecclesiastes. So as such, the voice of the teacher becomes the primary narration of the book until about the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. Then the author steps in and has something to say. But the ongoing refrain of the teacher is introduced with his first words spoken in the book. Everything is meaningless. Meaningless is an interesting uh, word choice. Anybody have a translation that says something other than meaningless? Vanity, yeah? You're not even looking at anything. You just knew that off the top of your head. You must be some kind of professional. <laughs> He's a professional Christian. Um, yeah, another way it could be translated or is often translated as vanity. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity, a chasing after the wind. The Hebrew word, the Hebrew word there is something called hevel. It's a, the simplest translation would be something like a vapor or a or mist or smoke. And this is noteworthy when you consider that there are other words in the Hebrew language that might communicate a more literal or direct, or, uh, direct sense of the word meaningless. So why does the teacher use this word hevel? Hevel is a, is a word picture, you know, it's something that conjures this immediate visual significance in our mind's eye, vapor or wind or smoke. The teacher, throughout the course of the book, is going to describe much of life as a, a vapor. But before he does, he opens his lengthy critique of the things we often chase after by breaking the bad news across the board. Everything is just a vapor. All of life is this withering wisp of smoke. This is your life and it's ending one moment at a time. So you see, you see smoke provides this uh, illusion of solidity, something that you can verify visually with some ease, and yet you can't touch it or take hold of it, and before you might comprehend why, it's vanished altogether. And confronting the reality of a life as, as rapidly vanishing vapor, the teacher argues, is maybe one of the means by which we unlike the secret of a life better lived, because life is often random or chaotic or nonsensical, even to chase after any justice or wisdom in it is like grappling at this dissipating mist that you can't get your hand around. You can look for unseen order in everything and you find that chaos reigns. Uh, one Hebrew scholar called Michael Fox says, because the meaning of words change, vanity probably doesn't capture Hevel for us today. Hevel is more like the word absurd or enigma. As strong as the language may seem, I think, you know, we can all resonate with this realization of an often arbitrary and ridiculous life. Because life seems so evidently meaningful to a near incomprehensible degree, and yet it is so simultaneously fragile, so vulnerable to injustice and to disorder. Why does a young couple desperate to have children in order to love and nurture them and lead them with kindness and humility struggle to get pregnant? And then miscarry. When, when just this week, a baby only a year old was beaten to the point of permanent blindness after a mother left the boy with a stranger. It's absurd. It's an enigma. A, a young family taking their two-year-old son to Disneyland for the first time only to be attacked and killed by an alligator outside of the hotel. It is absurd. 
or the honest businessman who operates with unshakable integrity only to be bankrupted by criminals or cheats, the innocent men and women locked away in prison for the better part of their lives because of faulty evidence or having the wrong color skin or the cancerous mold discovered one week too late or the parents who did everything right only to yield hateful children who seem hell-bent on self-destruction or even just this week the seemingly endless parade of police brutality and injustice and systemic racism and violence beginning violence on the news day after day giving way to more racism and more injustice and more violence all the time it's absolutely absurd it's hevel and confronted with the the random cruelty of the universe many have argued that the only proper response is to abandon our concern for significance and our search for meaning in life In this journal that chronicled his quest to understand Jesus of Nazareth, Leo Tolstoy wrote, The only absolute knowledge attainable by man is that life is meaningless. Uh, In his debut novel, uh, Pacific Northwestern author Chuck Palahniuk wrote, Everything you've ever created will be thrown away. Everything you're proud of will end up as trash. But thousands of years before either of them were the words of the teacher. Hevel, hevel, utterly hevel. Everything is hevel. And throughout this book called Ecclesiastes, the teacher provides a thorough presentation of his lofty accomplishments. And you, the reader, you wander from one impressive feat to another thinking, yes, fame, fortune, splendor, these things sound quite nice. And the teacher lays them all to waste, one after another. They were smoke, they were a vanishing vapor, and they were absurd. And oh, the irony... (laughs) That thousands of years beyond the words of the teacher, the very things he declares meaningless or hevel remain to this day the things we chase after or place our hope in or invest our lives in and suffer for, even followers of Jesus. So turn over just a little bit to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The first seemingly worthwhile endeavor to which the teacher draws our attention is pleasure. Read chapter 2 verse 1. I said to myself, this is the teacher speaking, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be hevel. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what pleasure, what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Skip down to verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was hevel, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Oh, uh, how familiar this wandering after pleasure, you know, especially amongst uh, the the young folks that I was, the 20-somethings that I uh, meet with or meet this this outrageous sense of entitlement that so many of us have, unique amongst recent generations. Surely if there's anything that could possibly make me happy in any way, I deserve it. It should be handed over to me pronto. You know, this, this infantilizing of the culture. No one should ever by any means be denied anything that they could ever want or offended in any way or inconvenienced at any given moment because we're all so special and wonderful and exceptional, you know. And the teacher says, knock yourself out. Go ahead and enjoy your drunken weekend with your friends, but Monday is coming and so is the day that you'll die because time and death are the great purveyors of hevel. And so everything is pointless. Read on in chapter 2, verse 12. Then I turned my thought to consider wisdom. 
oh, okay, this will be great. This is wise man. This is the wisdom literature. Let's see how this goes. And also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fools walk in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is heaven. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. The teacher is uh, unimpressed with career and with honor. Look down at verse 17. It gets intense. So I hated life <laughs> because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, the chasing after wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is hevel. So my heart began to despair over all a toilsome labor under the sun, for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is hevel, a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving for, with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is hevel. Go ahead and work. Amass for yourself a wonderful resume. Build an empire, if you like. And one day you'll be too old to enjoy it or care, and one day you'll die. Or perhaps you'll hit your head, or you'll develop a brain disease, and you'll forget all that you've worked for. Or perhaps your work will be delivered into the hands of someone that even you deem worthy to steward your life's work, but will instead neglect your values and drive this great feat of yours to ruin. Um... For a, a huge chunk of my life, personally, my primary work was as a, as a musician, beginning in uh, 1997. I devoted nearly all of my energy to writing and recording and performing music uh, in a band, in one particular band. I spent years traveling, uh, sleeping on people's floors, surviving for less than $5 a day, often no dollars a day. Um, usually for eight months at a time straight out of every single year. And eventually it seems like, oh my goodness, this is beginning to pay off. You know, we get signed to this major record label, travel across 10 countries, and you play more than a thousand shows to tens of thousands of people. You, we snuck our way onto late night MTV. This is it. We, you know, we, we made the Billboard Top 200, number 198. Thank you very much. Um, release nine albums. We had booking agents and managers and even an accountant and a lawyer. And next month, fast forward to present day, next month, that same band will play for the very last time in this tiny little venue with a small little crowd because honestly, hardly anyone cares anymore. Our, uh, our van, the second van that we burned through in all this time with more than a quarter million miles to its name and still way less than its predecessor was until the other day parked on the back of this block with a flat tire, a cracked windshield, a ticket on the dashboard, and a moldy sandwich under the seat. And I thought, man, that's a metaphor if I've ever heard of one. Because no one cares, honestly. Largely forgotten already, one day no one will remember this band. No one will remember these songs. Nearly two decades of a lifestyle so rough that it chews people up and spits them out will be relegated to the dusty corners of a few people's nostalgic memories. They'll be like, oh, hey, remember that band we listened to 10 years ago? What were they called again? And 
Though we never acquired any wealth to speak of, the teacher has something to say about that as well. So flip over to chapter 5. Let's look at uh, verse 10. Since all your life's work is going to be for naught, let's see about the money that you make while you're uh, working so diligently. Chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is hevel. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. What benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. So yes, chase after the nicer, more impressive home, the more expensive but wonderfully mid-century furniture, you know? Get the, the watch that wires in the feed straight to your wrist and blood flow, you know? Get the, the nicer, newer sneakers that are more neon and, you know, it took two slaves to make instead of one slave to make. Uh, you know, expand your wardrobe, get a, a bigger house so that you can cram more things into it. And the things that you own end up owning you, and it's all polishing the brass on the Titanic anyway because it's all going down. Well, why? why, why? Flip over a few pages to chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. Let's read beginning in verse 2 of chapter 9. Here's why it's all going down. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. And there's madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Again, <laughs> the very good, the very wicked, the very wise, the very foolish, time and death will erase them both. So you think, well, great. <laughs> uh, what is there to live for? <laughs> this, this is the ancient wisdom of the Israelites. So you're going, all right, well, what the heck are we doing? You know, uh, life is a vapor. All right, I, I see it, I guess. Now what? And before we go to the tables tonight to take the bread and the cup, I, I have a couple of observations from the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. So if you're taking notes, write these down. If you're not, try writing them down and see what happens. Um, the first is that we, we have a place to live in this enigma of Hevel. There's a way to live in the absurdity. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher spares no one. The rich, the famous, the hardworking, the lazy, the insignificant, those who stockpile, the minimalists. Everyone is en route to the same conclusion. On a long enough timeline, survival rate for everyone drops to zero. So how do we, as disciples of Jesus, submit to the authority of the scriptures? How do we find meaning and purpose in a world of hevel? Um, perhaps there are at least three deductions that you can gather from the wisdom of the teacher. And the first is to reject hedonism or the, the pursuit of pleasure. Chasing after anything and everything that offers even a flicker of pleasure... 
is not only futile but destructive because hedonism is a hamster wheel that exhausts and frustrates because every vapid thing that we invest in will eventually spoil or rot or deplete or worse, destroy us. But even so, the teacher also urges us to reject relativism. It's kind of surprising, you know, the teacher never gets to a place where he manages this uh, conceit of nothing is true at all, there is no wrong, there is no right, all worldviews are equal, it doesn't matter, throw out the whole thing. He still maintains from start to finish that there is a good way and a bad way to be human. You know, it never ceases to amaze me the incredible amount of uh, ostensibly progressive thinkers (laughs) who were frustrated by this idea of of absolute truth, the suggestion that there could be an absolute truth in the world. I I honestly can't tell you how many times I've been in conversation with someone or read some essay or seen, you know, some person on the internet, uh, some Yahoo who thought themselves quite clever. Uh, They they rail against the way of Jesus by saying something like, I just can't stand the idea that someone would be so arrogant as to suggest that they, they have the correct way of thinking and that other people have the incorrect way of thinking, uh, that there is a superior way of living and an inferior way of living, um, that others should be living and thinking their way and, and rejecting uh, other modes of living and thinking. So this hilarious individual voices their contempt by declaring that theirs is the correct and superior way of thinking, while this other view is the incorrect and inferior way of thinking. And they never seem to see the irony in it. But don't be fooled. Everyone has a worldview. You know, everyone has a claim to absolute truth. It's impossible to live otherwise. And if you read through Ecclesiastes, you find that the teacher does indeed believe there are modes of belief and living that are better and truer than others. So reject relativism. And even so, I'm not sure the teacher would stop there. I think that he'd also encourage us to reject a formula. So we've already seen that the wisdom of Proverbs is not meant to be adapted as promises for a life free of complication. And similarly, the teacher might laugh at many of our, myself absolutely included, many of our unshakable sort of tit-for-tat expectations of God and the universe. I've done these things, so shouldn't God hold up his end of the bargain and do these things? Or why should bad things ever happen to good people? And often life obeys the logic of Proverbs quite well, and often it doesn't, not at all. So one more time, look down at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And let's read beginning in verse 7 and see what the teacher has to say to wrap this thing up. Go, he says, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, always anoint your head with oil, enjoy life with your wife whom you love, all the days of this hevel life that God has given you under the sun, all your hevel days. For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you're going, there's neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So the teacher seems to believe that there is a, there is a place to simply enjoy life for the sake of enjoying life. In the midst of hevel, he's already acknowledged the absurdity of everything and yet goes on to say, confront the inevitability of death, even so, Enjoy life. All the days of your heaven life. The end. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the end. Like, that, that can't be it, right? You're reading this and you think, oh, okay, you're going to die, enjoy dinner. That's like, that's the best that he has to offer. Doesn't it seem, at least for many of us, that even if life is little more than a vapor, 
but there's some profound significance and meaning to this vapor that we call life. You know, there's this uh, word in the German language, uh, Zinsucht. It's, it's often translated into English as something like longing or craving or yearning. But uh, as I understand it, the word's a, a difficult one to translate. It, it describes a, a profound emotional state of being. You know, Zinsucht has to do with a, an awareness of something profoundly missing or incomplete. Zinsucht is this uh, psychological awareness of an unfinished work in our lives or the universe at whole or a, or a mourning of something that you can't quite place, something that escapes your grasp. And to, to curl our fingers around this withering wisp of smoke that we call our lives, feeling a profound sense that some great significance escapes our, our comprehension as the vapor fades, that is, I think, sinsukt. Why do we crave life without loss? Why do we mourn death and Why do we hate injustice? Why do we sense that there should be more than the random cruelty of the universe? And this is exactly why Ecclesiastes is incomplete without the wider wisdom of Proverbs and of Job. And this is why even the wisdom literature, read in full, remains incomplete, divorced of the larger narrative of the entire scriptures. Later in the New Testament, a follower of Jesus called Paul writes that Jesus of Nazareth is the power and wisdom of of God. And if Jesus himself is God's wisdom personified, it's like, oh great, well this will help. Uh, we might expect him to bring a complimentary closure to the often incomplete perspective of the wisdom authors. But instead, Jesus seems to make life even more absurd, just in a different way. If Jesus operated with a logic not unlike many of ours, he might simply kind of organize the cosmos into a black and white sort of karma system. Here are the good guys, they get the good stuff. Here's the bad guys, they get the bad stuff. Everyone gets what they deserve. Now everyone be quiet, and that's that. But instead, Jesus reveals a God who prefers to make himself nothing to enter into the hevel of our lives, that we might know something more than the absurdity that so confounds the teacher of Ecclesiastes. Jesus awards the, the crippled beggar a seat at his holy table. Jesus sits the wise before little children so that they can learn what the foolishness of God looks like. Jesus opens wide the doors to the kingdom of God and the criminals and the hookers come running in and he's celebrating and throwing a party while the the pastors and the theologians hang back awkwardly complaining about the process and how it's not organized correctly. (laughs) This is absurd. I'm sure many of you guys know well the story of Jesus and this friend he had uh, called Lazarus. The story goes that Jesus is on his way to see a sick friend called Lazarus and By the time Jesus arrived, it's too late. Lazarus has already succumbed to some illness he had and died. So Jesus seeks, or he asks about Lazarus' body. He goes in to see him, and what follows is one of the most famous lines in all the scriptures. You know, what happens? I'm looking at you, professional. He did weep. Man, you want to do this next week? (laughs) Um, Jesus weeps. It's this really bizarre instance in the story Not because it's unnatural to weep over the dead, but many pose the question, why weep? Has Jesus really not yet decided to raise Lazarus from the dead? Something that happens just moments after that. And uh, the story doesn't say, but perhaps Jesus weeps in the very intimate presence of Hevel, this thing that we all know so well. Perhaps Jesus weeps to find the things most precious to God so thoroughly sabotaged by sin 
and evil and Satan and death. That life is reduced to a vapor that vanishes in the time it takes to walk from one place to another. And seeing Hevel, seeing that absurdity up close, Jesus cries. He actually weeps. And then, get this, then Jesus reverses the power of Hevel. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus affirms our deepest sense of zinsuk, that there should be more. And for this reason, this disciple of Jesus called Paul in this letter he wrote that we call 1 Corinthians, he proudly declares that he no longer bothers with, with eloquence or with wisdom, but instead to, and I quote, know nothing except Jesus the King and him crucified. Because this is the clearest picture of the beautiful absurdity of God and how it absolutely subverts the world's hevel. It's like the wisdom that no one saw coming. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. What we all hoped but believed too good to actually be true is in fact made real in Jesus. God gives himself over to the hevel of death and injustice, and in doing so, he somehow defeats death and invites us into this great victory. In chapter 15, Paul also writes, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die... So in Christ, all will be made alive. Take that, teacher. In the Messiah, all will be made alive. And hear me on this tonight. All these things that you're, you're chasing after, every single one of us, I doubt that any one of us is, is uh, the exception to the rule here. Any of these things that you're chasing after can be taken from you. And many of them will be in your lifetime. Even the good things, you know, your career, your friends, or your accomplishments, even your family, those that you love, they will come to an end. The teacher is very, very accurate in this prediction. The uh, statistics on death, through the roof. They will die, so will you. And And to outrun the absurdity of this idea, we need something other than more things or more wisdom or a better career or deeper relationships or a nicer house or more wine or more romance or another degree or more stamps in your passport. The cycle of futility can only be broken by he who has the power to defeat death and hevel. And this, my friends, is the great beauty and hope for the disciple of Jesus. Not in chasing after some eternal reward and avoiding some eternal punishment. Not only in that the way of Jesus is actually the best way to be a human being, but that in Jesus, we acknowledge the ever-present cruelty and randomness of this life and we declare its power over us broken. Yes, for now, hevel. Life is often absurd, but not for always and not for long. So to end tonight, you know, what, sh- what should we do? Perhaps for some, the point is to con- have comfort in the face of Hevel. For others, uh, we may be learning to mourn Hevel while seeking refuge in Jesus' ultimate victory 
over it. And for others still, I suspect it stands to reason that perhaps the invitation is to know the one who will bring Hevel to an end once and for all.